Uh, anyhow, let me pray. I feel like I'm a little off this morning. Um, it's almost vacation, like two hours, and I'm on vacation. Um, so anyway, Father, we, uh, we do thank you for your word. Lord, what a uh, privilege, blessing, uh, comfort it is to be able to come and to sit under it. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would minister to us through a familiar passage to a lot of us, Lord, that you would open up our hearts, our minds, our spirit even, to receive from you, to understand what it is you have for us this morning through your word. Lord, we are a people that believe indeed that the word of God is alive, it's active, it's working in our hearts and in our lives. And, uh, and so, Father, we're praying this morning for the fertile ground to receive the seed of the word of God that we might bear fruit as a result of this time. And so bless your word as it goes forth, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 14. And we're going to pick up today, ultimately in verse 66, but I'll draw your attention first to verse 54, because there in verse 54 we read, it says, And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards, and he was warming himself at the fire. Now, if you were here with us or you've looked at this passage before, you recall that that little verse, that little tidbit of information there, didn't really have anything to do with the verse or verses that came right before it and the six or eight verses that came right after it. It's just sort of this thing that, that uh, Mark threw in there, and I had kind of made the point of file that in your back pocket. We're going to come back to that idea in a few minutes. Well, today, our study, will go back to that idea. Now, let me give you a little context, particularly if you weren't here with us. The, the context is we are in what is called the night of, or what we know to be the night of the Last Supper. And so it's Thursday night of what we call Holy Week. Jesus had celebrated the Passover meal, but gave it this Christian flavor when he said that this bread and this cup is going to be my body and my blood, which is going to be broken for you, which is going to be poured out for you. And so he forever altered sort of the significance or the meaning of that Passover meal so that even today we continue to celebrate communion together. And that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he come, comes. Jesus then left that meal, which was in the city of Jerusalem, and he went outside of the city of Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. And there in the Mount of Olives is a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, which we know that word, it means the place of crushing. It was the place they crushed the olives from the Mount of Olives and made it into oil that could be distributed amongst the people. But it was also the place where Peter, or excuse me, Jesus in prayer essentially resigned himself to the fact that there must not be any other way. And so not my will, Father, but your will be done. That any aspect of his personal spirit was crushed in that moment, and he relinquished his will to the will of his Father to go to the cross just a few hours after that. That happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, you recall he had said to a certain sect of his disciples, I want you to come with me. I want you to come over here. I'm going to go over there. I'm going to pray. You watch and pray as well that you may not enter into temptation. And that was the, primarily what we considered the last time we were together, this idea that Jesus is off praying, but there's these disciples who should have been praying themselves, but instead were sleeping. And Jesus came back on a few occasions and he said to them, you're still sleeping? He said, no, you need to watch and pray. And you recall Peter in that instance there, he just couldn't do it. He just couldn't bring himself to be praying, not because he didn't want to, his flesh, his spirit was willing, but his flesh was weak. 
And so we pick up now in, with that little tidbit of a verse because it was there that they were, Jesus was arrested. He was brought off into trial and to his trial. And as we see again, it says in verse 54, Peter followed him at a distance from the garden into the city where this initial set of trials is going to happen. He follows him at a distance. The verse even tells us that he gained access into the courtyard of the high priest so that he could observe this particular trial that is going on. We learn in another place that it's Peter and John that gain access to that courtyard, that are there sort of watching this initial trial that is going on. What happened to the other nine disciples? We don't know. They took off, they ran, but it's Peter and John. And Mark gives us this little bit of information. So let me pick up now from that verse that in 54, that Peter's sitting there by the fire, look down to verse 66. It says, now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and she said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and she began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them because you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse upon himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus has said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. He being Peter, broke down and wept. And so the one who earlier in the evening had boasted that he would never fall away. Mark chapter 14, verse 29, Peter said, even if all the rest of these guys fall away, I will never fall away. The one who even insisted that if need be, he would die with Jesus. Mark chapter 14, 31, he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. The one who said those two things just an hour or two earlier, that's exactly what he is now doing. Jesus told him, he would do those very things. And that's exactly what Peter is now doing. Because again, you remember Jesus said, Peter, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. And Jesus's admonition to him was not just kind of, well, that's just the way it is. His admonition to him was watch and pray. Watch and pray that you will not enter into temptation because the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And despite that very specific, candid prediction by the Lord, despite the Lord's admonition as to what Peter should do to kind of deal with that tendency of his heart, there in the garden, Peter just could not bring himself to pray or to the place of prayer. Now, let's all criticize Peter here because how I can't believe it. But you know what that's like, don't you? Baron does, Jeff does, a few of us here do, but you've been there. You have this desire, you have this want, but you just can't bring yourself to overcome sort of that fleshly desire that says to do something different. And so Peter here, he either could not or he would not watch and pray, and the result is the account that I just read to you. So our account, it begins with this servant girl. It says in verse 66, 67, it says, one of the servant girls 
comes to Peter there in this little courtyard, and she says, you were with the Nazarene, weren't you? Now, remember, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazarene refers to the place of Nazareth. That's what they would refer to them. And she says, you were with him. Now, that's not even a threat necessarily. It's not like she's saying that she's going to get him in trouble because he was with her necessarily. It's, we don't know what it is. It's an observation that we do know. And so she says, you were with the Nazarene, weren't you? And she could simply be making an observation, like, you know that guy, don't you? And kind of feel sorry for Jesus that his friend is going through this. Or maybe it is a threat. Peter, don't forget, a little bit earlier in the evening, cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Now, I would beg to argue it wasn't a crime because there was no evidence of the crime because Jesus healed the man. And so how, how are you going to try me here? But nonetheless, that was a pretty serious thing that Peter had done. And so maybe there is some kind of a threat here. Maybe this girl is on the lookout for the guy who did it here, whatever it may be. But whether it was a threat or it wasn't a threat, Peter had promised, even if I have to die, I'll die with you. And so whether it was a threat or it wasn't a threat, Peter's answer should have been, yeah, I know the guy. He's my friend. He's a good friend. As a matter of fact, he's my Lord, and I believe he's the Messiah. That should have been what Peter responded, whether this girl meant to call Peter out or not. Instead, he says, I have no idea what you're talking about. His words are, I neither know nor understand what you mean. He says, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know that guy. And subtly, Mark points out that in conjunction with that denial, the rooster crows for the first time. We read that in verse 68. Now, Jesus had said to Peter before the rooster crows twice this evening, which is kind of like, a, it's almost like bells chiming. It's an indicator of certain times in the evening. He says, before the rooster crows twice this evening or this early morning, you're going to deny me three times. Uh, and so that should have served as a wake-up call to Peter. And I, I've been a Christian long enough and I failed long enough in my attempts to walk with the Lord that I know he is gracious enough to give me little wake-up calls, give me little, these little indicators of time when I'm sort of going down a path I shouldn't go to or I have an attitude that I shouldn't have. He sort of just gives me these little clues these little rooster crowings that should wake me up and say, oh man, I'm going down a wrong path. And I think that is what it should have served as Peter, because again, earlier he said before he crows twice tonight, this first crowing of the rooster should have shaken Peter out of this stupor that he was getting into to realize I'm getting myself into trouble. I need to kind of pull back and regroup and refocus myself on the Lord. If only Peter had done that. If only he had realized the path that he was going down, stopped, pulled back and said, went and found the girl and said, you know what, I told you I didn't know him, that was a lie. I do know him, and I love him as my Lord. Earlier I said the account begins with Peter being questioned by a young servant girl. In actuality, it goes back even further than that to verse 54, which I read when we began. And that is you find Peter sitting at a fire, notice, with the guards. Now, the word that is used there in the original language is the exact word to describe the group that arrested Jesus, okay? And I, I think that says something because now Peter has situated himself by a fire with the very people that went and arrested Jesus, if you think of it, the enemies of the Lord. 
So the very guards that arrested him, and as we get to the end of the passage, the very guards that in a few moments are going to mock the Lord, spit on the Lord, and ultimately beat the Lord. Why is Peter sitting with these people? That should be a concern to him. Paul the Apostle, he wrote these words. He says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Bad company ruins good morals. Now, many times we cannot control who it is that we come in contact with, who it is that we have to spend periods of time with. You think about like the people that you work with, for instance, and that's just who's at the cubicle next to you or used to be six feet away now at the cubicle nearby here. How many times you can't control necessarily having to spend time with certain folks, but many times we can. Many times we can make decisions about the folks we're spending time with, the the folks that are influencing us in one way or another. And we would do well to take care of the relationships that we pursue and the impact that those relationships are having uh, unto us. Because again, Paul says, so it's God's word, bad company ruins good morals. I remember when I was in college, a group of us, I think we were all believers in Christ. We went to, I'm pretty sure I was, um, and I believe the people I was with at the time were, but we went to this little comedy show that they had for the kids, you know, some, what's the matter? I need a drink of water? I was telling a story. Thank you. Did I sound parched? I thought I was doing okay. Just in case. So, where was I? I was in college. So, I was in college, and I was at this little comedy thing. It's one of those things they put on for the kids to entertain them or whatever. And one of the characteristics of the college thing, it was clean. Uh, Otherwise, quite frankly, I wouldn't have been there. So it was clean comedy. But it was a comedy that was marked by sarcasm and cutting comments. And all these digs at at the few guys or gals, whatever, that were up on stage and people in the audience or whatever. And, you know, I'm sitting there, I'm observing it. And, yeah, that's funny. Oh, boy, that's funny. Well, as I left, one of the things I noticed in my little group of four or five friends that I had, as we left that particular place... We were cutting one another, we were being sarcastic with one another, we were putting one another down, because just sitting there for an hour and taking it in impacted me, and I hadn't even realized it until it came out of me. And I think it's the same thing, you watch certain things on TV, you read certain books or blogs or whatever it is that you read, you listen to certain types of music or whatever it may be, those things have an impact on us, and the friends that we gather ourselves around will have an impact on us as well. And so we need to be wise in the decisions that we make. I believe that we should be out and trying to minister to people and developing relationships with people and trying to win people. But at the same time, if I'm the one being won over, then I want to be on my guard against that. And here's Peter. He's sitting with this group of guards, the very people that mocked the Lord, spit on the Lord, beat the Lord, arrested the Lord, and he's sitting with them and getting comfortable with them, warming himself by the fire. And there are a series of decisions that Peter makes throughout this evening. As I look at this passage, it scares me because I don't want to find myself in a circumstance where I'm denying the Lord or where people are saying to me, you know the Lord, and I'm saying, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't want to find myself, and I know that I'm susceptible that that can happen. And so I want to learn the lesson of Peter. Peter's the one who burned his hand on the, the stove. I want to learn that the stove is hot 
from Peter having burned his hand, not from myself going and touching it to see if it's hot. You see where I'm going? You see what I'm saying? So I want to look at this and I want to learn from some things that we see in Peter. And I'm going to suggest to you there's a series of decisions that Peter is making throughout this evening that are going to lead up to these denials that we see in the passage that we read. And so, for instance, number one, back in chapter 14, verse 29, you recall at supper when Jesus made that statement that all of you will like, flee from me this evening. In 1429, Peter's response is essentially self-confidence and scorn of others. Never will I do that, Lord. They may, but not me, never. Well, that's a warning sign. If you notice that tendency in your heart, be on your guard. It's taking you down a path. Secondly, we see his failure to discipline his flesh. There in the garden, his flesh is saying, you need sleep, 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 sleep. But Jesus keeps coming back and saying, look, you need to pray. And his flesh said, sleep, and that's what he did. He failed to discipline his flesh further down that path. Chapter 14, verse 54, it says he's following the Lord at a distance. He's not hanging out as much with other believers. He's not going to small group any longer. He's rarely making it to church anymore. He's not having times in the Lord. Yes, I'm still a Christian, but he's following the Lord at a distance. You see how he's getting further and further down the path to the place where he denies the Lord? And then finally, he finds himself getting comfortable with the enemies of the Lord, as we've just read. Is it any wonder that his denial comes soon thereafter? Each of those decisions has made the denial a somewhat logical conclusion of the path upon which he is walking. And again, Jesus warned him earlier to be on his guard against these things. I said this a few weeks back, the battle here for Peter was lost essentially there in Gethsemane. Even as the battle of the cross was won for the Lord there in Gethsemane. The time for the Christian to fight temptation is before the temptation even comes against the Christian. That's why your quiet times are so important. That's why these times gathering and being encouraged by other believers side by side with you are so valuable and so important. The time to fight temptation is before the temptation even comes. And Peter, he forsook the opportunity to pray. And he was weakened as a result of that because he failed to take the opportunity to pray. And here he finds himself falling short, even of his own standards. Mark goes on in verse 69, he says, And the servant girl saw him, she said, This man is one of him, to the other bystanders. bystanders. But again, he denied it, emphatically. It says he denies even knowing the Lord. Now back in his first denial, when he said, I neither know nor understand, I sort of put that in contemporary language of, I don't know what you're talking about. In actuality, that phrase, it's, it's kind of like we go to court and we're going to be a witness or whatever, and we say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That was an oath that they took in first century Judaism. All right, this idea about knowing and understanding. And then the words that they came, you can trust me because I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Peter took a legal oath, I don't know the man. You can trust me. I would never take an oath if I were lying. That was sort of his uh, attempt 
to verify his own veracity. You can trust me because I've taken an oath. Look at verse 70, because there he takes a different tactic with a different group of people, replying this time with curses and with swearing when the bystanders sort of accuse him of being a Galilean. Now, the Galileans, I guess it might be like somebody from the south coming up here to New Jersey. Some of the Damaris, for instance. And you're like, you're not from around here, are you? You can tell by the voice there's an accent. And we, particularly, I know Kathy has a, a southern accent, maybe more so than uh, Eric does. And you know that. You're, like, you're not from around here. All right, nope, I'm from Louisiana or something. Like, did I sound like you, Kathy? Not really. Well, a Galilean would have spoken in such a way that the people of Jerusalem would have known, you're not from around here, are you? You're, one, you're from Galilee. And what are the chances that a guy from Galilee would be here in the temple uh, the, excuse me, the uh, high priest's courtyard while a Galilean is on trial. Of course you know this guy. Peter's uh, accent betrayed him here, but in Peter's response, we see it in 70 and in 71, it says he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And so perhaps he thought, this declaration under oath, maybe that would do the trick. But here he, he thinks now a new tactic that'll work is if I curse and I swear and I say, may, you know, God strike me dead if I know this guy, if I'm lying right now, if I say something like that, the people will leave me alone. He calls down a curse upon himself. Verse 72 goes on immediately, the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said, before the rooster crows twice, You'll deny me three times. And Peter broke down and wept. Rooster crows a second time, and it brings Peter to his senses. It sort of wakes Peter up to this stupor that he had descended into. You ever been in your car, driving your car, and all of a sudden you're home? And you have no idea the road path you took? You just sort of are going on? You're, you're kind of a, paying attention, sort of. Well, that's what was going on with Peter. He was walking through this life, but he was in this stupor. And the rooster crowing wakes him up. It alerts him. That's exactly what Jesus said. And I've just denied the Lord three times. Jesus said, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And that's exactly what Peter has now done on three successive occasions. Now, all four Gospels write of this, this event here, this evening, this trial, and so we can glean some wisdom by looking at the others. In Luke's Gospel, we learn that immediately following the crowing of the rooster, that the Lord turns and looks straight at Peter, and that it wasn't so much the rooster, it was the Lord's look. And so the rooster crows, Peter's looking at the Lord, the Lord looks at Peter, and it's the Lord's eyes, essentially is what wakes Peter up here. Last week I said we need to be careful that we don't read into certain words a tone which may or may not be there. I think here is another example where we need to be careful that we don't read something into the eyes of Jesus that may not necessarily be there. And so we could look at this passage where it says Jesus and Peter locked eyes and we could think that Peter was communicating, or excuse me, Jesus was communicating, see, Peter, I told you you would do this. We could think that Jesus is communicating, don't ever reach out to me again for anything. Because when I needed you, you didn't come to my assistance. 
We could think that Jesus is communicating, Peter, you're such a failure. But the text doesn't say that. And it doesn't give us any indication that we should necessarily walk away believing that is the case, which means, as a good student of the word, what we should do is walk away, okay, well then what is the typical response of the Lord to circumstances like that? Because the typical is more likely than the atypical. And the typical response of the Lord in a circumstance like that would be for Jesus to look on Peter with pity and with compassion and not stick it to Peter in this particular instance, but to be broken that Peter fell short for Peter's sake primarily. Peter had fallen short of even his own expectation of himself and he's broken over it. You look at verse 72 there, it says that he broke down and he wept. Peter was convinced that he would stand no matter what came against him and yet when he was faced with that temptation, he fell. And Peter was devastated for having done so. Have you been there, Christian? A lot of us have. And if you haven't yet, as you keep running with the Lord and getting closer to the Lord and making commitments to the Lord, you, you very well might, may likely fall short of even your own expectations for your walk with the Lord. Almost every one of us here probably has let the Lord down or even let ourselves down in some way. And so we could sit here in judgment of Peter. We could sit here criticizing Peter for denying the Lord. But three things stand out to me as I look at this. And I still think we should learn lessons. I don't want to be like Peter in this circumstance. And we can learn valuable lessons here. But three other things stand out to me here. And number one is this, even though Peter failed in this way, I'll say this, at least Peter was there at the trial of Jesus so that we can take notice of his failure in that circumstance. At least he was there. James wasn't there. Andrew, Peter's brother, wasn't there. Bartholomew, who none of us even know who that is, but he was one of the apostles, he wasn't there. Matthew wasn't there. And none of the other disciples were there except for John. And I'll remind you of this, John was a teenager and he was a relative of the high priest. So probably nothing's going to happen to John in this situation here. But Peter is potentially taking a great risk by being present in this circumstance here. At least Peter was there. William Barclay, he wrote on this and it struck me this week. He ministered. I almost, every now, I read like a, a bunch of commentaries and every now and then I'm pressed on time and I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to be able to get to that one this week. And I had one more to do. I was running out of time. And I said, well, you know, it'll be all right. I'll, I'll, it'll only take 30 minutes or whatever it may be. And so I read it. And it was the one that ministered to me more than any of the other commentaries this particular week. And this is from William Barclay. And it says this, Peter fell to a temptation which would have come only to a man of fantastic courage. It ill becomes prudent and safety-seeking men to criticize Peter for falling to a temptation which would have never in the same circumstances have come to them at all. I don't know if you picked up what I'm suggesting there, but if you weren't in the room, then you shouldn't be criticizing Peter, uh, is essentially what Barclay is getting at. And that reminded me of a framed photo. I couldn't find it. It's somewhere in my office. I don't know where it is, but uh, it's, a, it's a speech that was given by Teddy Roosevelt, President Roosevelt. Some of you were alive in his day. Just kidding. 
And you may have heard of the speech. It's pretty well known. It's called, it's commonly known as the man in the arena. The name of the, the speech is actually called the Citizens Republic, but that phrase has become the most famous phrase of that particular uh, speech. And here's what he said. It's kind of long. I'll read it to you. It's about 32 pages. Hang in with me. I'm kidding. It says, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or whether doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man or the woman who is actually in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, and who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither knew victory nor defeat. And that inspiring? I feel like I want to go vote for Teddy Roosevelt, you know, if he's on the, the ballot here. And just inspiring words. Listen, there is a place for looking at Peter and critiquing, not criticizing, but critiquing his actions that evening and those events that led up to it. And we can certainly look at what he did and say, look, here's wisdom. Don't do those kinds of things. At the same time, I think it would be valuable and it would do us well to look at this event and be just as amazed at Peter's courage rather than to be shocked at his failure. Because again, Peter was actually there. And so what's worse, the person who oversleeps and misses a devotional for the first time in two weeks or the person that never, never actually began to have a daily devotion? What's worse, the person who in the midst of serving the Lord gets frustrated and responds in a way that is unkind or unchristlike, Or the person that never gets frustrated at all because they never actually engage in anything that might cause them frustration? I think we would all agree that what we should honor is the latter rather than the former. Peter was actually there. Second thing that I noticed is this. And I'll remind you, I've said it before in past studies, the source of Mark's material was Peter. And so Peter communicated to Mark all of these things that we have in the gospel of Mark. And Mark took those things, wrote them down, and presented to us the gospel. The gospel of Mark is the earliest of the gospels that was distributed amongst the Christians. It was written about 20 years or so between 15 and 20 years after Jesus was here on the earth. It was written about 20 years before the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, and it was written about 35 years before the Gospel of John. We know that the Gospels of Matthew and Luke relied heavily on the Gospel of Mark in the things that they communicated in their Gospels. And Peter was the source of the Gospel of Mark. My point is this, we know of this account of Peter denying the Lord three times because Peter told us of this account of him denying the Lord three times. And what that tells me, it impacts me in this way, Peter did not allow his failure to define him or to shelve him or to break him once and for all, but rather Peter deals with his failure and Peter moves on from his failure. So important because we will fail. Third important thing that we learned from this account 
is to compare Peter's response to his failure with Judas's response to his failure. And you know, Judas being one of the disciples, he failed the Lord miserably earlier in the evening and days leading up to it, betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. And then when he began to feel some kind of a remorse over that and some sorts, whatever, his response was to go out and to kill himself to destroy himself. We read about it in Matthew chapter 27. It says, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. He brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, and he said, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. And their response, well, well, what is that to us? Deal with it yourself. And Judas threw down the pieces of silver in the temple. He departed, and he went out, and he hanged himself. Judas failed, and his solution was to destroy himself because of that failure. In our account this morning, we see that Peter also failed the Lord, but his solution was a very, very, very different solution. Earlier we read that immediately following that third denial that the Lord looked at Peter. Well, how did Peter know that the Lord looked at him? Because Peter was looking at the Lord. And immediately following his third denial of the Lord, Peter was looking to the Lord. And it's in looking to the Lord he was able to see that the Lord was looking toward him. And Jesus' look upon Peter was not wasted on Peter because Peter was looking back at him. Peter's love, Peter's devotion to Jesus never failed. His faith never failed. His hope failed. His courage in this instance failed, but certainly not his love for the Lord. And here's, I think, the lesson that we can take from this. It's this, when we fail, and we will fail in our walks with the Lord. John will say later on, if we say that we have no sin, we lie and the truth is not in us. We know that we're going to fall short. And what does John also say? But if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us of that unrighteousness. And so when we fail, rather than running from the Lord, which is the temptation, it's kind of what Judas did, rather than beating ourselves up over our failure, or even destroying ourselves as Judas did, we can, like Peter, look to the Lord. And with Peter, find the Lord looking right back toward us. I'm reminded of the time that Peter and the others were in the boat there in the Sea of Galilee. And you recall that they see the Lord out on the water. And Peter, I don't know why he says it, but he does. He says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out upon the water. And the Lord says, come on out upon the water. And Peter did. Peter briefly walked on the water. But sadly, you know, the story soon was consumed with the reality of the wind, the reality of the waves. And Peter began, in that fear, began to sink. I don't know about the disciples. I, I have friends, I suspect they would be laughing at me for going out on the water and starting to sink. Maybe the other disciples did that. Maybe they began to laugh at Peter for failing sort of in this magnificent way. You thought you could walk on the water. You're a loon. You're always the guy that's a loon. But I'll remind you of this. If that's what happened, Peter could always look back at them and say, well, you know what? I'm the only one who ever did, beside Jesus, walk on water. I'm the only one who actually got out of the boat and walked on that water. And sure, he failed in his sustained effort to walk on the water. But again, remind yourself, he's the only one that actually did walk on the water. Also notice when Peter began to sink, 
much like he denied the Lord in this temple, uh, in this courtyard of the high priest, when he began to sink, what did Peter do? He called to the Lord. He said, Lord, save me. And Jesus does exactly that. He reaches down his hand. He pulls Peter out. They get into the boat together. Even in that instance, Peter doesn't beat himself up. Peter doesn't think to himself or say, I'm so stupid. That's the last time that I'm ever going to take a, a step of faith again. Peter did what we need to do, what we need to learn to do in our failed attempts. Peter looked to Jesus and he cried out to Jesus for help. And again, that's exactly what the Lord did. He reached out and he helped him. And so we see this, look, even though G Peter fails, we remind ourselves then of those three things. He was actually there so that all of us today could take notice of his failure. We remind ourselves that the only reason we know about his failure is because Peter made us aware of his failure. And then this third one, I think so very important, Peter didn't settle into his failure. Peter didn't let that event define the rest of his Christian walk. He dealt with it, he confessed it, he was restored by the Lord, and he began to run his race once more. There's a tradition that tells us that for the remainder of Peter's days, whenever Peter encountered a particularly mean-spirited group of people, that people in this crowd off on the side, they would make a little cock-a-doodle-doo noise, a little rooster noise, just to stick it to Peter here, reminding him of the most spectacular way that, he, that Peter failed. And I'll remind you just once more that we know of this account because Peter shared this account. And so if that tradition is true, over and over and over again, Peter must have been told the story of his denial. And over and over and over again, Peter must have recounted how despite his great rejection of the Lord, that the Lord would not reject him. And being the great gospel orator that Peter was, remember how Peter stood up on Pentecost and preached the gospel and 3,000 were saved and shaved too? Everything. They just cleaned them all up. He was, they were saved, those 3,000, knowing that he was such a great gospel preacher that he was, no doubt every time someone reminded him of his failure, people turned that, Peter turned that around and reminded them of God's goodness and God's mercy. I was reading this week and I came across a wonderful story of an evangelist. His name was Brownlow North. Brownlow North was a Christian evangelist in the mid-1800s in England. And like so many others that are called to ministry North, he had a past. And it was a past that on occasion, uh, people would bring up again. And one time he went into a particular town and a, one member of that community thought they could use Brownlow North's past against him. And I'm going to read to you this again from Barclay's commentary. He said this, he says, there was an evangelist called Brownlow North. He was a man of God, but in his youth, he lived a wild life. One Sunday, he was to preach in Aberdeen. And before he entered the pulpit, a letter was handed to him. The writer recounted a shameful incident in Brownlow North's life before he became a Christian and stated that if North dared to preach, he would rise in the church and publicly proclaim what once he had done. Brownlow North, he took the letter into the pulpit with him. He read it to the congregation, and he told them that every word in it was perfectly true. 
And then he told them how through Christ he had been forgiven, how he had been able, enabled to overcome himself and to put his past behind him, and how through Christ he was a new creature. creature. He used his own shame as a magnet to draw men to Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? That's exactly what Peter did with his failure. He used his own failure as a magnet to draw other men to Christ. He used his own epic failure, and I'm not sure you can get any bigger, but he used it as a tale of God's grace and of God's mercy and of God's kindness. And Peter used his own shame to promote God's glory. And looking into the eyes of the Lord, Mark tells us Peter remembered what the Lord said. He ran out from that particular place and he wept. The Greek word there convulsed with great sorrow. He wept bitterly for his sin. And the Lord heard Peter's cry and the Lord restored Peter's soul. You know, looking at this passage, I think I've always looked at this passage from the angle of don't be a Peter. Look what he did. Look how he got himself into trouble. But this may have been the first time that I've ever considered this passage from the other side of the equation, the other side of that coin, or from a different angle altogether. And that is, be like a Peter. And don't settle into your failure. Get out, take chances for the Lord. And if you fall short, acknowledge your shortfall there. Confess it as such. Look unto the Lord receive his washing, receive his cleansing, and then get at, back up and go do it again. Amen? I think that's a message I needed to hear. And I, I know some of you, no, I'm, I imagine some of you do. And if you don't need to hear it today, file it away. And when you do fall, remember these words. Amen, good friends? All right, let's pray together. Father, we are delighted to consider your mercy, your goodness, your kindness once more. And Lord, it's like a cold drink of water. It's just refreshing uh, to our soul, really. And so, Lord, thank you for Peter. Thank you for his humility to share this dark day in his life, this day of spectacular failure. Thank you for the lessons he taught us about looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of his faith. Lord, I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul's words, having begun in the spirit, will you be made perfect in the flesh? We all know the answer to that is certainly not. And so we look to you again, sort of with fresh eyes, restore our souls, wash us, cleanse us, even as you did with your servant Peter, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.